Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Cool. Well, guys, um, Hebrews is, every week when I do the work for Hebrews, I come away thinking, this is a deep book. This has got a lot to it. And so we're shifting gears in the focus of the book. Um, If you guys remember, let's just do a little bit of review. Um, Chapter 1, Jesus is sovereign over the whole universe. Chapter 2, don't drift. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Chapter 3, don't harden your heart like that generation that wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And in case you forgot it, chapter 4, he tells it again, don't don't harden your heart, don't wander, don't apostatize, don't turn away. And then he ended chapter 4 with that whole idea of the Word of God being sharper than a double-edged sword. And then he introduced again this concept of Jesus as our high priest. So we are starting chapter 5, and from chapter 5 through about halfway chapter 10, the focus is on Jesus as the high priest. Okay, this is not new to the book of Hebrews. Go to chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. It says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. Come on in, guys. We're in a different room tonight just because. Um, so, so chapter 1, verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the, the word of his power. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down after making purification. Now, it doesn't specifically say Jesus is a high priest there, but there's the imagery there of making purification like a priest sitting down. Okay, go to chapter 2, verse 17. We've already seen it in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he's a merciful and faithful high priest. And then last week, chapter 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us draw with confidence, let us draw nearer, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, high priest, let me just ask you a question right off the top of your head. How many of you have a detailed working knowledge of the Aaronic priesthood of the Old Testament and the intimate details of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy? I'm sure all of you do. I mean, in your spare time, don't you sit down and just understand the Aaronic priesthood? Okay, so this is foreign to us, this whole idea of the high priest, the priesthood. But if he's going to talk about this for the next five chapters, he's going to lay a foundation of talking about what the high priest did back in that. Hey, Scotty. What the high priest did back in the day and then how Jesus is our high priest. So we're going to look at four things tonight. If we can get that far, we may not get that far because really chapter five through chapter six, verse 12 is all one unit of thought, but we're definitely not going to get that far. 
because there's just way too much information. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at part one, which is the qualifications of the priest in the Old Testament. What, what were the priests responsible for in the Old Testament? And that's what we see in verses 1 through 4. So let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Okay, two major qualifications of a high priest in the Old Testament. He had to be able to sympathize with the people because he was a sinner himself, and he had to be especially appointed and called by God to serve. He didn't appoint himself. So let's look at the first issue here, and that is the high priest as representative of the people. What does it say there in verse 1? Every high priest was chosen from where? Among men, appointed to to act on behalf of men. So he was chosen as a man out of men to act on behalf of the men. And if you go back to Exodus 29, you find out that God ordains how Aaron, when we say Aaronic priesthood, that comes from the word Aaron, Moses' brother. Okay, so in Exodus 29.9, you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So Aaron and his sons were to be the ordained, consecrated priests chosen from among men. Now, just a trivia question. What tribe was Aaron and Moses from Levite. That's why they're the Levites, the the Levite priests. Aaron comes from the tribe of Levi. Okay? So, he's chosen out of men. God said Aaron and his sons are going to be chosen to represent the people. And what was the one day that the priest represented the people that one big day a year? Do you guys remember that day? The Day of Atonement. So as Israel's representative, representing the people on behalf of the people, the high priest would offer sacrifices for sins on the Day of Atonement. Okay? So Numbers, I mean, sorry, Leviticus chapter 16, 21 through 22 tells us about that. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. That was the scapegoat. Um, And so there were two goats that, that, on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats. The first goat... Aaron would put his head on top of the goat. And why do you think he put his, his head on top of the goat? His hands. Why did Aaron put his hands on top of the goat? To, why do you think he put his hands on top of the goat's head? In a sense, he's representing the people. But why 
why did Aaron have to go in and sacrifice for his own sins? Because he's human too. He, could, he couldn't just go in there and say, hey, I don't have any sin, and so I'm going to just sacrifice for the sins of the people. He had to actually purify himself and get ready to sacrifice for himself as well. And that's why it says there, what does it say there in verse 2? He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He understands what it's like to sin. He, he could never go into the Holy of Holies and, and realize that he was perfect he never, you know, he understood what it was like to have sin. He was tempted in every way, but he sinned. Aaron sinned, and he was able to go in there and help understand, deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Um, you can go back, for the sake of time, I don't know if we're going to go back and look at that, but if you go back to Numbers chapter 15, you, you find that there are, Sins of ignorance and sins of high hand that the Bible talks about. And just to give you a background, high-handed sins that you do rebelliously that you know, those weren't atoned for. The penalty there was death. The other sins, whoops, sorry. (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Sins of ignorance, sins of, um, like, for example, you, you, you had a moment of weakness and you, you repented and you, and you weren't really doing it intentionally, but you kind of fell into a moment of weakness. There was atonement for those types of sins, but it was the high-handed sins that weren't atoned for. And so Aaron's here and the priests, they could deal gently because they themselves had sin. And that's why verse 3 says, because he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. Now, he was also, so number one, the high priest had to represent the people. He represented the people. He sympathized with the people. He was one of the people. The other thing about him was that he was appointed by God. That's what you find out in, 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 in verse 4. No one takes this honor. It should be verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. So the high priest was not self-appointed He was called and commissioned by God to serve. You just didn't walk up and say, hey, I want to be a priest. You had to be ordained and called by God as Aaron and be part of Aaron's lineage. So two big things that the priest, the high priest did back in the Old Testament. He was a human sinner, but he had two major qualifications. He represented the people. How did he represent the people? Do you remember what he wore when he went into the Holy of Holies? He wore an ephod, a vest. What was on the vest? The 12 tribes of, of Israel were embedded in there and also on his shoulder. So every time he went in and made sacrifices, it was a visual reminder embedded into his linen ephod that he was representing the people. He was sacrificing for the sins of the people. And secondly, he was appointed by God. Okay? Now, the writer's going to say, okay, that's going to be what Jesus does, but to a greater degree. Okay? So Jesus is high priest. He's already told us three times. And now he's going to begin to talk about how Jesus is the high priest. But he does it in a little bit of reverse order. Um, What were the two qualifications of a priest in the Old Testament? Represent the people called by God. He's going to reverse the order and say Jesus was called by God and he represents the people. So let's read verses 5 through 10. Okay. So also... Maybe your translation says, in the same way. 
Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after, or, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so the writer here says, just like Aaron, Jesus was, number one, appointed by God to serve as a high priest. Just like Aaron and his sons, Jesus was appointed by God. Why is he appointed by God? Because he is the eternal son of God. Look at verse 5. That's a psalm. What psalm is that from? You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Anybody know what psalm that's from? If you read your sheet, you can cheat. Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. This is a messianic psalm we've talked about before, Psalm 2. It's a prophecy about how Jesus is going to be the king to rule on the throne because he's the eternal son of God. So God appoints Je- God the Father appoints Jesus the Son to be king of kings and lord of lords. Okay? But then he quotes another verse here from Psalm 110 verse 4 that we've got to deal with. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. We have two priests mentioned in this passage of Scripture. Who's the one priest? Aaron. Who's the other priest? Melchizedek. Mel- Melchizedek. And there's another figure that's not mentioned in here, but we know that Jesus' lineage comes from, and we're studying him on Sunday mornings. Who's the other one? King David. Okay. Now, let me ask you a question. What was Aaron? He was a priest. Was he ever a king? No. King David, was he a king? Was he ever a priest? No. So Aaron was a priest, but he was never a king. David was a king, but he was never a priest. Let me ask you a question about Jesus. Is Jesus a priest? Well, yes, because he keeps calling him a high priest. Is Jesus the king? Okay. So in a sense, Jesus is similar to David because he's a king, but he's also a priest. And in a sense, Jesus is similar to Aaron because Aaron's a priest, but Aaron was never a king. Who's the only Old Testament character that was a priest slash king? Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest king and there's not a lot of information given about who this dude was now in chapter 7 he's going to explain more fully this whole issue of Melchizedek so he's just introducing it here Um, and so the argument that he's making here is this 
How can Jesus be both priest and king? Because Aaron was only a priest and David was only a king. There was only one person in the Old Testament who functioned in both roles as a priest king, and that was Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And we get this from Genesis 14, 18, when Abraham had an encounter with him. And we have just this one statement in this little story. But here's what's sta- stated in Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. What two words do you see in that verse? He was a king and he was a priest. What city was he the king of? What does it say there? Salem, which later became Jerusalem. So the only figure in the Old Testament who was king and priest of Jerusalem was Melchizedek. And this was before Aaron and before David. So when he talks about Melchizedek, basically it's this whole idea that Jesus is the only one qualified to be both priest and king. It's unheard of that anybody in the Old Testament would have ever done that except for Melchizedek. He's the, he's the exception. Okay? We'll talk more about Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7 because all of chapter 7 deals with Melchizedek. He's just introducing him right here. Okay? But Jesus is not only appointed by God because he's the son of God. He's a priest king. What's the other thing a priest does in the Old Testament? He is a representative. He identifies with the people of God. So Jesus is our representative. What was the big thing we talked about back in chapter 2? Jesus came in the flesh. And we focused on how Jesus was tempted in every way we were, yet without sin. He came in the flesh. He had to be made like his brothers. He came in the flesh to identify with us. And that's what happens here. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh... What did Jesus do? He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He offered up prayers. Offered up prayers. That word offered up is the same word used in verse 1 of the priest offering up sacrifices. So it's this whole idea that Jesus, while he was on earth, there was a moment in time where he offered up, what does it say there? Prayers and supplications, how? With loud cries and tears. So the question is, when did that happen? When was that recorded in the Gospels? Do you remember? The Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, which was hours before Jesus died, what did he do? Well, let's, let's go back. I've got, I've got some scriptures here that shows from the Gospels how Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears. So let's look at Mark 14, 33 through 36. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the cup. What was the cup? The cup of God's wrath that he was going to experience on the cross. But what, is it, what are some of the words here? What's Jesus experiencing here when he's crying in the Garden of Gethsemane? Sorrow, pain, anguish, loud cries. Luke says it this way in Luke twenty-two forty-four. 44. 
And being in agony, he be prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's serious agony. And then in John's gospel, John 12, 27 through 28, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Did God hear Jesus' prayers? Did God take the cup from Jesus? Did God's will get done? Okay. So what does it say back in Hebrews? Verse 7. He, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers in loud cries and tears to him who's what, able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Was Jesus saved from death? Trick question. Was Jesus saved from dying on the cross? But was he saved from death? Trick question. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but what did God do three days later? Rose from the dead. So Jesus was ultimately saved from death in the sense that he rose again. Okay. Now we get to verse 8. Although he was, your, does your translation say a son? The a, well, definite article a is not in the Greek text. It really should be saying son. Although he was son, capital S-O-N, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. Now, this is a, a, a weird question. Why in the world did Jesus have to learn obedience? And, and what does it mean he was made perfect? Well, he had to go learn obedience through suffering so that he could truly empathize with us. This does not somehow mean that Jesus was previously disobedient. He learned, he learned obedience because before, before he was disobedient. Or he became perfect because before he wasn't perfect. What did he just say back in chapter 4, verse 15? He was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. So what does it mean? It means this. Jesus had to go all the way to the cross and be obedient to death on the cross to fully sympathize with us all the way. Because we die, right? He had to die. And that's what Philippians 2.8 says. Philippians 2.8 says, he, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to what? To the point of death, even death on the cross. So in his incarnation, when Jesus came as son, he was obedient to his father's will by going fully to the cross, accomplishing everything that God had for him to be accomplished. And then Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm again. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Psalm 22, 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. What was the last thing Jesus cried out? After it is finished, what did he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And what did Jesus do? Or what did God do? God received Jesus and vindicated him by raising him from the dead. Now, because of his obedience unto death, because he sympathized with us, because he cried great tears, because he went through everything we went through without sin, look at verse 9. He became the source 
That word source there is really similar to the word pioneer or leader that was used back in chapter 2. The leader, he's the leader, the source. Everything comes from him. Of what? What's he the source of? To all who now obey him. And as I was reading this, I found it interesting. He's the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. One would think it should say, He's the source of eternal salvation to all who trust in Him or believe in Him or have faith in Him. How are we saved? Are we saved by obedience or are we saved by faith? Through grace. Faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Why does He say obedience here? Yeah, even, yeah there, there's, there's a saving faith and there's a mental assent that just accepts Christ as, as an historical figure. Here's why I think he says belief there. I don't, think it's a, I don't think he's trying to throw some weird theology on us by saying, oh, all of a sudden you're saved by obedience. What's he been talking about the past three chapters? What's, the chapter, what's, the, what's been the theme of chapters three through four? Last week, we spent all the time on it. Unbelief, disobedience. Hardness of heart. What happened last week? They failed to enter the promised land because of disobedience. And what was the point last week? If you fail to believe, you won't enter the promised land. You won't enter heaven. So here's the point. I think he's what he's saying. Not that you're saved by works, but this. Authentic Christians demonstrate that they have been saved by grace through consistent obedience to Jesus and His Word. Would you agree with that? You're not saved by consistent obedience, but it's demonstration that you have been saved. So what does Jesus say about obedience? Jesus Himself. John 14, 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commands. 1 John 5, 2-3 by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Okay. Now, he's kind of introduced this whole concept of the high priest of Jesus. And then he's going to kind of jump out of that and get back to a warning. He kind of does this, doesn't he? He gives some exposition. He talks about angels. He talks about... Uh, and then he gets back to a warning. What's been the warning so far? What are all the different warnings we've seen? All right, go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Go, go to chapter 2, verse 1. Let's just look. He's given warning after warning. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we don't so don't drift. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So don't, don't drift, don't neglect. Chapter 3, verse 8. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. So don't harden your heart. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. Don't fall away. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of eternal rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Don't fail to reach heaven. And then chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what's he been saying all along? Don't neglect. Don't fall. Don't drift. Don't harden. 
Don't neglect. Don't rebel. Don't do all these things. Listen, listen, listen. And then he comes back to that. So look at verse 11 through 14. This is part three that we're looking at tonight. Dullness of hearing leads to spiritual immaturity. So he's going to interrupt this discussion about Melchizedek, and he's going to come back to it in chapter 7, but he wants to give us a warning. And so here's what he says. Let's read this. I like what he says. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be what? Teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he says, listen, I've just introduced this Melchizedek fellow. I know it's hard to understand. And part of the reason you guys aren't understanding me is because you guys are what? Dull of hearing. Does anybody have a different translation? What does yours say? Do all yours say dull of hearing or sluggish maybe? The word means sluggish, lazy, negligent, reluctant to listen. What has, what's, what's, if there's something that's been jumping out to you in the first four chapters of Hebrews, what is it? Everything hinges on what? Hearing God's word. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. So what does it mean to hear God's word? Does it mean let it go in one ear, not the other? In the Old Testament, especially the the Hebrew word Shema and its variations, the, the word hear or listen means that you actively listen with the predetermination to obey. So you could translate the word Shema, hear, O Israel, hear in the Old Testament. It doesn't just mean open up your ears and listen. It means listen with the intention that I'm going to obey what I hear. There's a difference between listening and obeying, right? You can all listen to a preacher or listen to somebody. Like with your kids, they can listen to you. But are they obeying you? Deuteronomy 4.1 And now, O Israel, listen, Shema. Listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Listen. He's saying, listen, guys. I'm trying to explain some things to you. It's like you got your ears plugged, you're sluggish, you're lazy, you aren't listening. As a matter of fact, you're still stuck on your ABCs. That's what he says there in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. What does he say there? The basic principles. And actually, it's an interesting word. It actually, it literally means the alphabet. Don's a second grade teacher. 
usually kindergarten, they learn the alphabet, or even in preschool, they learn the alphabet. So hopefully by the time, hopefully before kindergarten, they know their alphabet. By the time they come to your second grade class, they should be able to know their alphabet, know words, know how to spell, know how to put sentences together and write. Okay. By the time your student's a senior in high school, what should you know how to do? Write a five-paragraph term paper with a clear thesis and supporting evidence written without any grammatical mistakes. Now, if I were to say to you in this room, are you still hanging around the ABCs of Christianity or have you moved deeper in your faith? All of you may give different answers, but what he's saying here is, listen, guys, you're still back going A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You're, You're back there. And by now, he says, you ought to be teachers. That doesn't mean like an official teaching capacity, but what he's saying is you should by now have enough Christian knowledge that you're able to communicate that to others fairly well. But you're stuck in the ABCs. And basically what he's saying is, I can't serve you steak because you still need milk. What's he been serving us all along here? Has this been milk? (laughs) It's not been milk. It's been pretty meaty. But he says, you guys are acting like babies. You're spiritual babies. You're immature. And Paul did this. Paul went back, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, what did Paul say to the church in Corinth? But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Paul says, I'm in the same boat. I can't feed you anything more because you're still acting like spiritual infants. What's the problem with spiritual infants? What does an infant do? Can an infant feed themselves? It craves a lot of attention. Let's just talk. What does an infant need? Can an infant do anything on its own? Okay. Now, there comes a point where a baby Christian, when a person just becomes a Christian, they're a spiritual infant, are they not? They don't know how to read their Bible. They don't know how to study. They may not know how to pray. They, they, they don't know how to give tithes and offerings. They don't know. There's a lot of things that they don't know. But then, as they've been discipled, do you want somebody to stay as a spiritual infant? You'd want them to grow into maturity. What's the danger if everybody in the church is still in spiritual infancy? What's the danger for the entire church? Chaos. <laughs> yeah, you walk into a nursery, what do you see? Sometimes on Sunday mornings, it's chaos. And you got one person there trying to control it all. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. What happens to children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who's the head, into Christ. All throughout the New Testament, there's this call to grow up. We don't want to stay spiritual infants. We don't want to stay at a baby level. We don't want to be back with our ABCs. We need to grow up. And the writer of Hebrews says, you guys need to grow up. Paul says, you guys need to grow up. You're being infants. You're not, I can't feed you meat. Peter says it this way. He uses the milk analogy, but he uses it in a positive way. In 1 Peter 2, 2, he says, like newborn infants long 
for the sp pure spiritual milk that by it you may what? Grow up. Excuse me. So, do you want to grow up in your faith? Or do you want to stay stagnant? Do you want to stay a baby? Do you want to grow? I don't know of any Christian who's truly a Christian that, that doesn't want to grow. They may not know how to grow. They may struggle. But I think all Christians want to progress. They want to move. They want to grow. And here's what happens. If you don't listen, he's saying, if you're sluggish, you will stay in a state of spiritual immaturity. And like you said, it's chaos in a church. So here's the question that I want to ask, and I think he answers it, but I, I want to expand upon it. What is a distinguishing mark of spiritual maturity? If he says, you guys are acting like infants, you guys are acting like babies, I can't give you pure, pure word, you're, you're infants, you need to grow up. What does a grown-up Christian look like? Look carefully at the text. Look at verse 14, because verse 14 answers it. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of trained by what? Constant practice to do what? Distinguish good from evil. Okay, so let's break that verse down because I think it's an important verse. Here's the answer to what is a mark of spiritual maturity. Let me, let me kind of define it, but I think verse 14 is saying. The ongoing and consistent training of your heart and mind through the Scriptures to give you the power to discern good from evil. What are some of the key words there in that definition? Ongoing and consistent. Okay. What's another key word? Training. Training what? Heart and mind through what? To be able to what? Discern good from evil. Okay? So let's look at, let, let me just give you four, four things under this. How do you know that you're a maturing Christian? Okay? It involves consistency in the Word. What does consistency in the Word mean? That you're not just coming on Sunday morning and, and getting what I'm feeding you, but that throughout the week you're feeding yourself on this Word yourself. You're constantly training your heart and mind through consistency. Now, the second thing I wrote, you may think, well, that sounds the same way. Intentionality. Is there a difference between consistency and intentionality? What's the difference? You can consistently read the same passage over and over again. You could be consistent. What's intentionality? You want to say something? No, I was going to say you can be consistent but still random. Yeah. Like, so you're might be random every day. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You guys, you guys in that old story, this guy said, oh, man, I'm struggling. He was in, he was in the um, hotel room, and he was thinking about committing suicide. There was a Gideon's Bible, and he, and he said, you know, I, I don't know how to read the Bible. And, and so he, he says, I'm just going to ask God to give me some help on how to, how to read the Bible and help me in the situation. So he opens up the page, and it says, Judas hanged himself. <laughs> I don't think that's good. Let me, let me turn some pages the first verse I come to, God will give me an answer. Go and do likewise. <laughs> That's not good. Flips the pages, puts his finger on it. What you're about to do, do quickly. <laughs> so so there was, he was reading the word to get an answer to help him, but was it intentional? 
No, it was kind of like you use the book as a magic as a magic talisman to try to give you answers. Intentionality. That's why like a, a Bible reading program, whatever Bible reading program you have, have whether it's you know the, the McShane one that we do as a church where you read through the Bible, or it's the Discipleship Journal one, or you have something on you version. There's something that's consistent to where you're consistently and intentionally training your heart and mind in the Scriptures. Okay. Now, what does it do? When you do that, it involves, what does it say? Discernment. So when you read your Bible, number three, it involves discerning sound theology from false teaching. Is that important? Sound theology from from false teaching? How do you know? How do you know that the latest and greatest televangelist on on TV or the Internet is telling you the truth? How do you know he's on a quack or she's on a quack or a wacko? By knowing your Bible. Okay? So you need to filter everything through the Scriptures. And not just theology, but also the ability to make good ethical and moral decisions. Because he says there to discern good from evil. So I think it involves not only your belief system, but your actions. So discernment is, I can read the Bible consistently to discern the truth of the Scriptures theology, but it also helps me discern how to make wise, godly decisions that are in keeping with His Word. So it affects your belief system, and it affects your actions. And what's the, what's the point? Constant practice. Training, constant practice. And so here's what Paul would tell us in Romans 12. And you, you know this passage, Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. What is that? How do you renew your mind? What we just talked about. And if, as your mind's renewed, what are you able to do? That by testing, practice, you may be able to what? Discern what the will of God is, what is good acceptable and perfect. So if you want to know good discernment, if you want to know God's will, if you want to discern good from evil, if you want to discern good theology, Paul says and Hebrews says, constant practice, having your mind and heart constantly renewed by the word. So here's the principle of a spiritual maturity. The more you study the scriptures and have your mind renewed, the better you become at holding to sound doctrine and living a consistent godly lifestyle. And he's telling them, you guys aren't there. I wish you were, but you're not there. As a matter of fact, some of you are on the brink of falling away. You're still back in your ABCs, is what he's saying. Now, he's going to move into chapter 6, where he's going to build upon this. And so we've got to ask the question, okay, he just said, I want you to be on solid food. I want you to leave the basics. But then he's going to give them the basics, but he wants them to go solid in the basics. So let's go to part four of tonight, a call to mature more deeply in the gospel. So before we even start, let me just ask you a question. Is the gospel fairly easy to understand, the gospel message? Do you ever get over the gospel? You shouldn't. Do you ever stop learning about the implications and the depth of the gospel? You know one thing that bothers me on Sunday morning? I'll just confess. This is Pastor Sean's confession night, so I'll tell you what really bothers me. I'll start. 
you know, there's a point, there's those parts in my sermon where I like, I really start focusing in on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, focusing on the cross. It's like the gospel. And it's amazing how many Christians just tune it out. And it's got, they've got this look on their face like, heard this a million times. I know Jesus died on the cross. Get to something better. And you can just see certain people in the audience just kind of suddenly like tuning out. And to me, that's discerning, dis- dis- disturbing, concerning, because I think when the gospel is talked about or preached, if you're truly a Christian, it should ignite some excitement in you because you, you relive what's happened to you and you want to, you want to hear that. It encourages you and you want to make sure people around you hear that. So I just get, so, so when I start talking about the gospel, do me a favor. Get to the edge of your seat and say, he's going to talk about the gospel. Oh, wow. No, I'm, just, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm just saying it's interesting. It's interesting just how sometimes we can just take the gospel for granted and say, yeah, I've heard that a million times. I've heard about repentance. I've heard about faith. I've heard about the cross. Um, and what he's going to do here, he's going to say, listen, those are basics. But you can go deeper in the basics. Would you agree with me? And we should go deeper in the basics. Okay, so let's look at chapter 6, 1 through 3. Therefore, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So he says, listen, we're going to go on to solid food. And here's the solid food I want to tell you about. So the question is, what's the solid food he wants to serve? It's interesting. You would think he'd say what? What do you think? He's a a hilarious pastor. What's he say? You guys can't handle solid food, but I'm going to give it to you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give it to you deep, the rest of this thing. And so that's the point. What happens if a pastor always serves pablum to people? If all you get is milk and get milk and get milk, are you ever going to get to where you can take solid food? Um, I've heard of pastors that have gone into churches, friends of mine, they are, that, that preach the way I do, that do expository preaching, that preach you know, the full counsel of God's word, that maybe preach a little longer than 20-minute little ditties about Jack and Diane. You know, just, I don't know if that's or just a little, I don't know where that came from, but little, like little, little sermonettes for Christianettes or whatever. Um, they, they, preach, they preach the way, like the similar way. And they go to these churches that have never had this type of preaching. And they walk in, and they're like, their first sermon is like, turn to the book of Galatians. And they preach a 45-minute expository preaching on Galatians, and the church is shocked out of their system because they've never had that. They've been served for 20 years cotton candy. They're used to 20-minute little cotton candy sermons, and so it's like like they can't even digest what he's giving them. And so he learns the hard way that he's like, whoa, I've got a hard road to hoe because this, this, they're mature, they're immature, they've been fed baby food. I can't give them a steak, so I've got to build up to that. But what happens if he goes in and says, okay, this church, all they've been having is baby food. I'm just going to keep giving them baby food. Does that that do anybody any good to keep giving baby food? It's malnourishment. And so one of the things that we need to make sure that we're doing is, is we never want to back down on growth, depth, solid food. Okay, sometimes I get accused of maybe going a little too deep, and I understand that. And sometimes our church has the reputation of, oh, that church gets a little, that church is a little bit too theological. Yes, maybe. Um, but I would rather be known for going deeper in the Word than having mamby-pamby, um, what's the word? Sermonettes for Christianettes. So, 
Anyway, that's my, that's my, that's my sermon for tonight. Um, we can go home now. Here's what he's going to do. What are the gospel truths that we need to become more mature in? The gospel truths, the basics. Now he says, listen, I'm going to give you some basics here. I'm going to give you six basics. And these are basic things that you should know as a Christian. Now some of you may know more than these, but I'm going to give you these six basics. But these are basics, and we don't need to build the foundation on them because we've already built the foundation on them, but we need to go deeper in them. So he's saying, here's the, ba- here's the six basics I'm going to give you, but I want to go deeper in them. And so let's, what are these six basics? They're the ABCs of the gospel, really. Things that are basically tied to the gospel. But he says, I want us to go grow deeper in our implications of these. So let's look at these six things. The first thing he talks about is repentance from dead works. Verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of, here's number one, repentance from dead works. Is repentance a part of the gospel? You better believe it. Is repentance a basic thing that all Christians should know in order to become a Christian? Okay. Is it something we ever grow out of? Okay. Let's just look and see how the gospels and the Bible talk about repentance. Matthew 3, 2. Some of Jesus' first words, repent for the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus started his ministry by calling for repentance. Jesus ended his ministry by calling for repentance. In Luke chapter 24, 45 through 47, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So Jesus started his ministry with a call to repent, ended his ministry with a call to repent, told his disciples, If there's one thing you need to do, disciples, you need to preach repentance so you have to ask the question when you get to the book of acts do we see the disciples preaching repentance yes peter on the day of pentecost he stands up in acts 2 38 peter said them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit Acts 3.19 in his second sermon, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17.30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Let's just stop right there. Is repentance a suggestion? What What does he say? Jesus commands. So if you hear a gospel presentation that does not include repentance, is it being faithful to the gospel? All right, so let me give you a gospel presentation. You guys tell me if this is a good one or a bad one. Okay. Let me see, see how I want to do this. Um, you know, you have this God-shaped vacuum in your heart and you're going through a lot of problems and God can meet all your every need and all you need to do is just... Say this prayer, give your life to Jesus, and just ask Him into your heart, and He will give you, He will fill that void in your life. He will come and He will just give you this great sense of peace. And all you need to do is just accept Him into your life, and um, He will make your life a whole lot better. And if you, if you just say this prayer and repeat after me, I promise you, you'll go to heaven and have a, a much better life. Is that the gospel? Half of it's true, right? Is it a whole true? 
what did I leave out? Why do they need to be saved? Okay, we need to know we're sinners before we can get saved. And most people don't understand that. Okay. Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 21, that he went house to house testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Acts 26, 20 at the end of Acts, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the nation of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. What does that mean? Yes. That you don't just repent. You repent one time. Let me ask you a question. Are you, what do we call Christians? What's another name we call Christians? Believers, right? Believers. We're believers, right? Have you ever heard anybody call Christians repenters? We're repenters. We're called believers, right? But who calls us repenters? But we should be called repenters, right? Do you just repent once? You're always repenting. So let's ask the question. If we're going to go deeper into this doctrine of repentance, he says, hey, it's a basic doctrine. He's saying, hey, listen, this, this is a foundational truth, repentance, but we need to go deeper in repentance. You should know what repentance is, but let's go deeper in repentance. What exactly is genuine repentance? What is genuine repentance? In Acts eleven eighteen, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Is there a repentance that's not true repentance? Could there be a repentance that doesn't lead to life? Could there be a half-hearted repentance? Can you just be sorry for your sin and not really repent? Listen to Spurgeon. He made an interesting statement about repentance. This, is, this will make you think, okay? Quote, Do you think you'll repent of your sins if no punishment were placed before you? Or do you repent because you know you shall be punished forever if you remain in your sins? Suppose I tell you there's no hell at all, that if you choose you may swear and if you will you may live without God. Suppose there were no reward for virtue and no punishment for sin, which would you choose? Can you honestly say this morning, I think I know by the grace of God I would choose righteousness if there were no reward for it, if there were nothing to be gained by righteousness and nothing to be lost by sin. What's Spurgeon saying there? Do you repent simply because you're afraid to go to hell? Or do you repent because it's what draws you closer to Christ and it's something that flows from your heart that God has put there? So Thomas Watson, Puritan pastor, 1600s, wrote a really good book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And he does a much better job than I do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to borrow stuff from his book. And he gives, I think, how many steps or how many aspects does he give here? Um, five. Five aspects of repentance, the kind of the way he defines repentance. And I, and I agree with him. I, I like the way he puts this. So first of all, he says... There's the sight of sin. And what he means by that is we must see sin as sin and be confronted by the Holy Spirit to see what God truly calls rebellion against him. If we don't first see sin as sin, we'll never repent. Now, why is that a first, why is that a first step? Why do you think we'd even include that? You've got to see sin as sin. What's our first temptation to do with sin? 
excuse it, downplay it. It's not really sin. It's just a minor problem. It's, a, it's an issue that I have. Until you come to grips with the fact that it's sin, you won't ever repent. And secondly, he says, okay, once you've seen that it's sin, and it truly is sin, you need to have sorrow for sin. I like what he calls it. He says you need to have a holy agony. A holy agony over your sin. David said in Psalm 38, 18, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. So first we have to, under, we have to recognize it's sin. Don't justify it. Recognize it. Number two, feel really sorrowful about it. And number three, confess it. You've got to confess that sin. This may be confessing it straight to God, or it could be actually confessing it to others. It could be both. Um, notice what David says in Psalm 32.5. I acknowledge my sin to you. He's talking to God. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There's an interesting passage in James 5.16 that we as Christians don't do very well. We do part of it well, but we don't do all of it well. And you'll, you'll see what I mean. Therefore, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Did I, did I, did I, I didn't quote that right, did I? What does it say? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. We do a good job on the second, don't we? We pray for each other pretty well. But what's the first one? Confess your sins to each other. How good of a job do we do at that? Not very, do we? But he says, what happens when you confess your sins? You'll be healed. Now, is he talking about physical healing? I don't know. It could be relational healing. All I know is that there's a passage of Scripture that says we are to confess sins to one another. Yes, we confess directly to God, but sometimes we have to go confess to somebody else if we've sinned against them. Fourth, there's a hatred of sin. You've got to hate it. Psalm 119, 104 through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So you've got to recognize sin is sin. You've got to mourn and grieve over that sin. You've got to confess that sin. You've got to truly hate that sin. But then last, you've got to turn from it. That's what Western repentance really comes in. It's turning from the sin. Um, Isaiah 55, 6-7, Seek the Lord. While he may be found, call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's an interesting passage of scripture. I always, I always read this and it, it kind of catches me. You guys tell me, what catches you in that passage of scripture if you're just reading it? And maybe it, does, it catches you differently than it does me. Especially in verse 7. We often think of repentance as what? Turning from our ways. Let the wicked forsake his way. We understand that, right? Stop doing sin. But what's the second thing there? His thoughts. So repenting also involves turning from wicked thoughts. You know what repentance means in, this, in the Greek word language? Changing of mind. It really... If your mind's not changed about your sin, then your behavior's not going to follow. Very, very seldomly are you going to stop doing something because um, 
what I'm trying to say is your mind comes first. The change of mind comes first, and then that leads to actions. So repentance also involves a changing of our mind, our heart, everything, to where we forsake our ways. And then in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, we find out that church, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from what? From idols to serve the living and true God. Richard Owen Roberts has written this. He's written a book on... Richard Owen Roberts has written a book on revival that's really good. He's written a book on repentance that's really good. Um, Here's what he says about repentance. In genuine biblical repentance, one does not merely seek to escape the wrath of God or the guilt of conscience. The repentant person turns from all that displeases God towards that which pleases him. The repentant individual turns his back upon sin and himself and in faith turns to Jesus Christ. This turning is a day-by-day, year-after-year process of refusing to follow sin and self and deliberately following Christ. That's a pretty good definition. It's a day-by-day, year-by-year process of refusing to follow sin and deliberately following Christ. So the first basic he says there is repentance from dead works. So let me ask you guys a question. Or do you have any other questions on repentance? What the doctrine of repentance is? We could spend all night talking about repentance. It's a pretty basic thing, right? But is it something that we need to go deeper in? He's saying, yeah. It's a basic thing, but we need to have a deeper understanding of it. What's the second thing he brings up? What's another foundational thing? ABCs. Faith toward God. Repentance and faith. Repent and believe. So this is the most basic, wouldn't you think? If there's the most basic of ABCs in the Christian life of what it means to become a Christian, wouldn't we say it's believing in Jesus? Remember the Philippian jailer in Acts 16? He asked the great question. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's it? That's all? Yes. It's believing. But the question then is, what kind of believing? Because I think, Dale, you mentioned earlier what even the demons believe and shudder, according to James. What's saving faith toward God? Romans 10, 9 and 10, you've probably heard this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Okay, what is saving faith? Is it, I raised my hand in an altar call? Is it, I got dunked in the waters of baptism? (laughs) Is that saving faith? Now you may, I mean, obviously we're not downplaying baptism. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Russell, you look like you were going to say something. It'll come back to you, huh? So throughout history, there's been three important elements of saving faith. 
that really the reformers, the reformers had to really define these because in the Roman Catholic Church during the Middle Ages, right before the Reformation, there was this false type of faith. It was not faith alone. It was not grace alone. It was the sacramental system. It was indulgences. It was all, purgatory, all these different things. And so the reformers said, you know, we really need to define what faith is because if I talk to, if you talk to people on the street about faith, we're going to have a lot of different definitions, aren't we? Because if somebody says, I believe in God, does that make them a Christian? Somebody says, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in Allah. Does that make them a Christian? So what is saving faith? Let's give you these three things. Number one, it's got to start with knowledge. This is where the mind understands the facts of the gospel, the need of salvation, the understanding of the personal sin, and that Christ is the only one who can save. This, this is basic. You've got to have the facts. Is anybody saved without knowing those things? Who Jesus is, that they're a sinner, that he died on the cross? You've got to have knowledge. Now, is knowledge enough to save you? Okay, because the demons have knowledge, but they're not saved. But you have to have the knowledge, right? In order to have saving faith, you have to have the knowledge, but it's not enough. Okay? There's one more step. Secondly, you've got to have what's called assent or approval. This is where the heart, not just the mind, understands, but your heart has a settled confidence and affirmation that Christ can save me personally. I agree with the gospel and I approve of what it says for me personally. There's one thing from saying, I believe those facts, that's cool. There's another thing saying, wow, I'm a sinner and Christ can actually save me. This makes sense for me. I need salvation. But are you still saved at that point? No, there's one more aspect of it. This is the actual trust. The personal commitment of our lives to Christ by repenting of our sins and trusting fully in Him. So, in other words, what we're saying is one is not soundly saved unless they can comprehend with their minds the gospel, embrace the messages true in their hearts, and then personally put their entire trust in Christ alone. Okay? And he says this is a basic. Faith. So repentance and faith, are those pretty basic? You should, he said, you should know, repentance and faith. Now, what's the next one he says? Instructions about washings. Okay, so we're going to talk about laundromat and Tide and what in the world is he talking about? Instructions about washings. My ESV has a footnote. Does yours have a footnote? Mine says baptisms. And so I think what he's talking about here is baptism. Is baptism a basic thing about the Christian life? So think about what he's talking about, basic, repentance, faith. Now he's talking about baptism. Now, before we talk about water baptism, let's go back to the Old Testament and talk about what God promises to do in a spiritual baptism. Because when the Bible talks about baptism, it talks about two different types of baptisms. It talks about the inward spiritual washing that God does when he saves us, and then there's the outward profession of faith that shows what's happened on the inside that's the physical act of baptism. Okay? So in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, God made a promise to um, the Israelites that would come through true in Christ, and especially when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Um, Ezekiel 36, I will, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
So in the Old Testament, God promised this day that when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to come and put a new heart in you. He's going to cleanse you from the inside out. He's going to wash you. Okay. So when repentance and faith happens, are you washed from the inside out? Yes. But then, what's the first act of obedience that a Christian does to demonstrate that they have a new heart, that they have a new life, that their old life is dead? It's baptism. Okay, so we see baptisms all through the book of Acts. I mean, I'm just going to give you a couple examples here. Um, In Acts chapter 2, at the end of the Pentecost sermon, Peter says, with many many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I don't know if they baptized all 3,000 that one day. That would have been awesome. But here's the point. Let me just say this. The New Testament does not know of any Christian who's an unbaptized Christian. It's just not in there. If you were to go look in the New Testament to find a Christian who's not been baptized, you can't find it. And so it's very, very important. And to say this, every time the gospel is presented in Acts and somebody trusts Christ for salvation, what's the next thing they do? Get baptized. Okay, so, for example, um, in Acts 10, 44, this was when Peter goes to the um, Cornelius' house. It's the first time that the Gentiles are really receiving the gospel. Before that, it had always been in the Jewish context. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Oh, wow. Can you believe it? God saves non-Jews. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Notice what Peter does. Now, most pastors don't do this. What did most pastors say? Hey, you know, would you seriously think about getting baptized? What's Peter do here? I'm commanding you to get baptized. So is baptism a suggestion or a command? It's a command. What did Jesus tell us in the Great Commission? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So we could talk more and more about baptism, but he says, listen, these are basics. These are foundational things. Repentance, you should know repentance. You should be able to teach repentance. Faith in God, faith in Christ, true saving faith, you should be able to teach that. Hebrews, baptism, by now you should be teachers on these things. These are basic foundations. We don't need to go back and lay these foundations. You should know what these things are, and you should go deeper in them so you can explain those to others. Then he gets to the hard one. But I struggled with. and I'll, no, I was so frustrated with the commentators about wanted to spit. I don't know. I was really upset. Here's the fourth one. Laying on of hands. And the reason I was upset, the commenters, nobody wants to give an answer. Like, what, what does this mean? Well, it could mean this. It could mean this. Well, tell me what you think it means. And everybody copped out. Every commentator copped out. And so I'm going to give you my opinion because no commentator gave an opinion. I'm like, you guys copped out. I'm going to give my opinion. What is the laying on of hands that's supposedly supposed to be this basic thing that we're supposed to know? You guys practice laying on of hands? What does it mean? 
Okay, is it a prayer for blessing? Because when Jesus blessed the children, what did he do? Matthew 19, then they were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So does this mean we have baby dedications and we lay hands on children? I think yes. We practice baby dedications and what do we do? Now we don't, sometimes the baby lets me hold them, but in a sense, we're symbolically blessing a child by laying hands on them. So do we do baby dedications? Is it a basic thing? I, I don't know. It's not, baby dedications aren't prescribed in the Bible. Jesus never said, thou shalt do baby dedications. We see him blessing babies and taking them and holding them in his arms. And by extension, we do baby dedications. But it's not prescribed like baptism and Lord's Supper. So is it that? Or is it setting leaders apart for ministry? Because... When you look in the New Testament, you also see that when the deacons were being chosen by the elders in Acts 6-6, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So before the deacons were sent out, hands were laid upon them to to, to set the deacons apart. Um, When missionaries were ready to be sent out from the church in Antioch in Acts 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they laid hands on deacons. They laid hands on missionaries. And then Timothy, who's a pastor, in 1 Timothy 4.4, Paul says, Hey, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So is it... Ordination, laying on hands of of ordaining people to ministry. What does it mean? The writer of Hebrews assumes it's a basic. No commentator wants to give what it means. So um, they give a a list of options. But here's my best guess. Almost every time the mention of laying on of hands is given in the Bible, either explicitly or implicitly, the Holy Spirit's present. The, the, the role of the Holy Spirit's there. Um, you can kind of see that. Do not neglect, you know, whether the Holy Spirit's mentioned, you know, verbatim, His presence is there. Okay? And so, what I think it means is this. I think it's a metaphor for the power of the Holy Spirit in bringing us to faith in Christ and his ongoing work in empowering leaders within the church. Now, that could be exercised in baby dedications. That could be exercised in laying hands upon leaders. But I think the laying on of hands is possibly a metaphor for just the role of the Holy Spirit giving power in the life of the church. Um, That's my best guess. Because there's a lot of different definitions of laying on of hands. And he assumes, the writer of Hebrews assumes it's it's a basic, that we should know what it is. But yet no commentator knows what, he's talking about what are your guesses what do you think it is yes oh what did you okay. what did it say oh so somebody actually came up with the same thing i did i didn't i didn't consult your bible okay yeah yeah so it's all those it, it, maybe it's just a catchphrase for all those practices related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. You were going to say something, Tiffany? Yeah, I was just thinking, I feel like what um, should be a blessing for people, like, like they consider it a blessing to be saved. Um, okay. Like 
Yeah, so so like a like an ironic bless like when you lay hands, you're 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 basically not that you have the power to bless, but you're symbolically saying, Lord, we come along them and we set them apart and, and ask that your your protection over these missionaries as they go out. We ask your protection over this baby. We ask your protection over this pastor. So yeah, so it's it's always in the context of blessing. So that's how the Mormons, that's how the Mormon, Mormon, yeah, Mormon. Hmm. That, that the Holy Spirit would empower them. Yeah, the, the thing about this passage of Scripture is that the writer of Hebrews assumes it's a foundational thing that everybody knows, but yet the commentators can't agree. So here's my point. We can't be dogmatic on what it is. I would just say that in some ways we practice what the New Testament does. Do we do we do we uh, do we um, bless and lay our hands and do baby dedications? Yes. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Is it a good thing? Yes. When deacons and elders are appointed and we come and lay hands upon them, is that a good thing? Yes. When we even send missionaries out, or even when the youth go on a mission trip, don't we sometimes bring them down the front and and lay hands on them? There's nothing magical about laying on hands, but it's a symbol that. We're praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to be present in that ministry or in that life. And so I think it, that's what it's talking about. Okay? Uh, let's see here. Let's see if we can finish. Another basic, he says what? Instructions about washing, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead. Final resurrection. Is there going to be a final resurrection? Yeah, it's, it's, the writer of Hebrews says this is a basic thing. You should know this. Daniel 2.12, it was in the Old Testament. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and some to everlasting contempt. Jesus said in John 5.28-29, Do not be amazed at this, for time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Is there a resurrection of both righteous and unrighteous? Yes, on the final day, there will be a resurrection from the dead. And we also know what happens in Revelation at the end of the Bible. Revelation 20, 13-15, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so the writer here says, okay, there's some basics. Repentance. Faith, baptism, the power of the Holy Spirit in the church, the final resurrection. And then the sixth one, what does he say? Eternal judgment. There's going to be heaven and hell. There's going to be eternal judgment. And what does he say? What does Jesus say in Matthew 25? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people on one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left and the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared before you since the creation of the world. So there is an eternal judgment. 
Jesus has been given power to judge. John 5, 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and He has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. And then Paul again on Mars Hill in Acts 17 when he's preaching. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. We looked at that. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He's appointed. He has given proof of this to all by raising Him from the dead. And then Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. And then in Revelation, we're going to finish tonight. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what was written in the books. Look at verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. What what are they going to do? What's he telling them to do in verse 1? Go on to maturity. We will mature in these things. We'll move on. These are basics. We need to know them. We need to go deeper in them. But we will move on to maturity if God permits. Which means what? God willing, we must rely upon the absolute sovereignty of God to grow up in these truths of the gospel. And you've got that James passage there that says, um, you don't know what tomorrow will bring your life's but a mist. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. So here's the point. He starts out talking about the priesthood. And he starts talking about how Jesus is the priest of Melchizedek. And then he stops and says, now wait a minute, i got to stop and i get time out. I, I can't continue talking about Melchizedek because it's too confusing. It's too deep. You guys aren't listening. You're spiritually immature. You're dull of hearing. You need to grow up. You need solid food. Let's get back to the basics. Yes, let's talk about repentance. Let's talk about faith. Let's talk about baptism. Let's talk about these things. You should know these by now. You should be teaching others by now. Let's move on to maturity. And then what we're going to get to next week is the most difficult passage, and we've dealt with this before, in chapter 6, which talks about the issue of if somebody falls away, can they ever be brought back to repentance? So he's going to address falling away big time, the, the, the most powerful he's done yet in the book.